Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. And welcome to Teddy Talks for Saturday, May 16th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, future home of Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. It is Saturday morning, and whatever the, uh, the pace of life, uh, whatever the daily activities that you've undertaken, there is something about Saturday morning that uh, was always a little different, a little more special. Or it might still have meant uh, into the office on Saturday morning or out with the work that lasted beyond Friday. And, and I kind of like that. And I do like, though, that Saturday is often a day to uh, see the neighbors and the come and the go, do a little gardening out in the yard. Uh, today, doing something special in uh, honor of a a friend in Rotary, in uh, the uh, Rotary Club of Dickinson, our friend Irene Schaefer, celebrating today her 90th birthday, born in 1930. There's someone we should have online telling stories about uh, a wonderful life lived, and in the spirit of Rotary, lived in service above self. So today's program for Irene Schaefer, a friend, in 1903, on this date, two men who I think would consider themselves at least to be friends in the cause of conservation, Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir, would have woken up uh, in the early morning in Mariposa Grove, a wonderful stand of tall trees that, uh, as a result of the camping trip, would become part of Yosemite National Park. Those men had a three-day and three-night camping trip on these dates, uh, May 15th, 16th, and 17th, the, uh, the sleep at Mariposa Grove, during which Theodore Roosevelt said that sleeping amongst those tall trees was like, was like lying in a temple, a temple far grander that, than uh, any that could be fashioned out of them by the hands of man. The uh, following night, the camp would be uh, at Glacier Point, and you can visit uh, both of these places uh, and the third to follow, but at Glacier Point, uh, telling stories around the campfire, uh, T.R. wrote that uh, John Muir uh, lit fire uh, to a dead cedar tree on the brim, uh, and uh, a greater candle was never seen, was T.R.'s phrase, I believe. The third uh, night, 
Instead of being at the hotel with all of the politicians and the commissioners down on the valley floor, uh, John Muir introduced Theodore Roosevelt to Bridalvale Meadows, of course, underneath and looking up at Bridalvale Falls. Yosemite is a beautiful place, and we look forward to our friends in the National Park Service and all of those that uh, provide uh, interpretation, guidance, and, and adventures, and most especially to my friend Lee Stetson, who performs in Yosemite as John Muir. Uh, look online for John Muir Live. Wonderful programs, uh, DVDs, audios, that sort of thing, and, and uh, I hope that uh, you'll take an interest in the wonderful work of Lee Stetson as John Muir. I thought in reading some of the accounts done uh, by others, I didn't quite hit the mark. So I really do recommend, if you get a chance to see Lee Stetson uh, and his friend uh, and colleague Alan Sutterfield in the role of Theodore Roosevelt uh, on the West Coast uh, anytime, go and see The Tramp and the Rough Rider. Now, I'm delighted that on occasion, uh, Mr. Sutterfield's uh, busy calendar and perhaps the logistics have given me the opportunity to uh, understudy with Lee Stetson. I bring TR to life in his Tramp and the Rough Rider. We've done it here in Medora. So here's to friendship, to Irene Schaefer on your 90th birthday, and to each and every one of you. I hope that uh, in the midst of all of this, that there's something that's given you a stronger bond of friendship and familial love with uh, you and yours. It's May 16th. Cheers. Again, Theodore Roosevelt coined the phrase when he finished his coffee at the Hermitage in 1907, Andrew Jackson's home. He turned to the steward and said, Sir, that coffee was good to the last drop. The coffee was from the Maxwell House Hotel in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. The newspaper reported that Theodore Roosevelt said, That's the kind of coffee I like to drink when I hunt bear. I think that both phrases sound equally plausible as being Rooseveltian. On this date today, May 16th, this has been fun for me. In the comments, let me know uh, what you think. For me, again, going through a bit of the history, especially uh, uh, 19th, uh, 20th century history, uh, to connect Theodore Roosevelt in his, in his times uh, with uh, those from whom he inherited uh, uh, the American experience and the government uh, that was built by the time he became its chief executive, uh, to those uh, with whom he wrestled and fought and uh, those allies that he had in the ring. On this date, May 16, 1801, the birth in Orange County, New York of William H. Seward, uh, the American lawyer and politician, 24th United States Secretary of State from 1861 to 1869. Uh, that makes him uh, eight years of uh, both uh, Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. Settling in Auburn, New York, Seward was an attorney elected to the United States Senate and governor of New York prior to, the, prior to the 1860 presidential election, in which he was the favorite going into the Republican convention uh, in Chicago to be the nominee. Uh, the Republicans, if I have it right, had only nominated one previous uh, candidate for the presidency, Fremont, in 1856. So it's a nascent, a young Republican party. And, and uh, the Illinois Republicans and Abraham Lincoln, now famous for his Lincoln-Douglas debates of the previous election cycle in 1858, the debates against Stephen Douglas, and uh, speaking at Cooper's Union uh, in the run-up to the convention, uh, well, uh, uh, Lincoln was the nominee. Seward, supported and campaigned for Lincoln, was appointed to that uh, Secretary of State's position. 
Fascinating for me is the fact that while we sadly know the story of uh, John Wilkes Booth uh, and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln on the evening of April 14th, the uh, death of Lincoln the following morning, April 15th, Seward was attacked. Uh, Andrew Johnson was supposed to have been attacked, this uh, conspiracy for which several hung, including the man who attacked uh, uh, Seward at his home. Seward had been in a uh, coach accident, was recuperating from uh, uh, horrible wounds, and uh, uh, the uh, the fellow who uh, attempted to uh, kill him uh, bludgeoned Seward, attacked him uh, with a bowie knife uh, after his gun jammed when it was being fired point blank at the head of uh, Seward's son at the home at Lafayette Park. So that's right across from the White House. Uh, Seward, of course, we remember the name for uh, Seward's Folly, 1867. The purchase of Alaska from the Russians for $7 million. And even though it was just two cents an acre, the uh, purchase was ridiculed in Congress and in the press as Seward's Folly, Seward's Icebox, or President Andrew Johnson's Polar Bear Garden. Seward supported Johnson during the 1868 impeachment trial by which on one vote on this date in the United States Senate, uh, the charges, the impeachment of the House was not confirmed uh, uh, by the Senate by one vote on this date, May 16th, 1868. Part of why I do this on this date is because it introduces me to individuals, to characters, to legacies that I wasn't taught and that I didn't learn by my own initiative. And so uh, here with uh, the thought for uh, my Suwannee professor, Anita Goodstein, and a wonderful seminar we shared on uh, uh, women, uh, women's history uh, at uh, Suwannee. This is the uh, birth, May 16th, 1804, the birth in uh, Bellarica, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Bellarica, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, an American educator who founded the first United States kinder kindergarten. And kindergarten was the peak of my academic career. I loved being a kindergartner. Half a day, naps, snacks, play, uh, the most delightful teacher, and that was at Salt Creek Elementary School in Elmhurst, Illinois. In 1839, she opened Elizabeth Palmer Peabody's West Street Bookstore at her home in Boston. And it was there that many figures in the women's rights movement took part in conversations organized by Margaret Fuller with topics as diverse as fine arts, history, mythology, literature, and nature. And she was one of the transcendentalists. She uh, was the business manager for a short time of the Dial magazine that uh, uh, published much of the transcendentalist work. She was tutored in Greek by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And in 1844, the magazine published Peabody's translation of a portion of the Lotus Sutra from French. And it was the first English version of a Buddhist scripture. What an interesting person. Opened that first kindergarten in 1860. Until that time, uh, the practice of kindergarten, educating uh, children younger than the age of six, was largely confined to Germany, where she traveled and studied. And uh, this is one of those late in life uh, inspirations I get. She was born in 1804 so did not found her, uh, uh, her kindergarten until the age of 56. Uh, she went then to uh, Germany to study kindergarten at the age of 63. Uh, and uh, as editor of the Kindergarten Messenger from 1873 to 1877, that has her editing a, a national magazine in her early 70s. She helped to establish kindergarten as an accepted institution in American education. 
In 18, now that was uh, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, for those of you looking for additional reading. 1824, on this date, May 16th, the birth in Shoreham, Vermont, of Levi P. Morton, American banker and politician, 22nd Vice President of the United States. I do believe it would be uh, 31st Governor uh, of New York. Morton, in any case, fascinating, a son of a congregational minister trained in a business career and clerking in stores in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. As a young man, it was in New York City that Morton became a successful merchant, cotton broker, and investment baker. Active in politics as a Republican, Morton was an ally of Roscoe Conkling. Twice elected to the United States House of Representatives from New York, and in 1880, uh, Republican presidential nominee James Garfield offered Morton the vice presidential nomination. On Conkling's advice, uh, Morton declined. Garfield offered the nomination to another Conkling ally, Chester A. Arthur of New York, who accepted. And of course, on Garfield's assassination, Chester Arthur and not Levi Morton became president of the United States. Garfield appointed Morton to serve in Paris as our minister to France for four years. And in 1888, Morton was nominated for the vice presidency and elected with Indiana's Benjamin Harrison and uh, served as vice president from 1889 until 1893. Part of why this, I think, is important and to look into the relationship is that uh, uh, then uh, after serving uh, as vice president, uh, Morton goes on to be the re successful Republican nominee for governor of New York, serving from 95 to 96. So uh, these uh, are definitely gentlemen that were in the same orbit, right? Uh, Theodore Roosevelt being appointed as a United States Civil Service Commissioner, uh, having his family reside in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, during this time, and uh, uh, obviously working with uh, Morton in the work of the Republican administration. And then uh, Morton being uh, just one governor removed from Theodore Roosevelt in the line of succession as New York governors. Uh, he, uh, interestingly, uh, born May 16th, 1804, uh, uh, I'm sorry, May 16th, 1824 in Shoreham, Vermont. He would also die on his birthday, May 16th, 1920. Uh, he's buried in Rhinebeck, New York, and the uh, family is involved in a uh, an Astor home for children. It was Morton's uh, daughter who began a, a great uh, charitable house for the recuperation of uh, children uh, in, uh, in Rhinebeck, New York. That uh, same date, 1824, May 16th, 1824, and this, if I may, a tip of the hat to Suwannee, the University of the South Fork. Born on this date in Jacksonville, Florida, Edmund Kirby Smith, and a uh, United States Army officer who fought in the Mexican-American War and, of course, served as a, a general uh, in the Confederate Army, uh, led the uh, Department of the West in Texas, and uh, was amongst the, he was the last general officer to surrender in June of 1865 in Galveston before departing to Mexico and Cuba to avoid treason charges. He would eventually become a college professor of mathematics at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee, where he had a tremendous botany collection donated to the University of Florida. At the time of his uh, death in Suwannee, he was the last surviving man to have been a full general in the Civil War. He is buried at the University Cemetery at Sewanee and uh, his lawn at the Kirby Smith home at the, uh, the north end, uh, the northeast end of the uh, football field at Sewanee, often a place to enjoy the hospitality of those residing at the Kirby Smith house. May 16, 1842, 
The first major wagon train headed for the Pacific Northwest sets out on the Oregon Trail from Elm Grove, Missouri, with 100 pioneers. May 16, 1866, the United States Congress establishes the nickel as one of our coins. We mentioned uh, uh, the failure of the Senate to convict Andrew Johnson uh, uh, on uh, by one vote on the state in 1868. And finally, May 16, 1918, the Sedition Act of 1918 is passed by the United States, United States Congress, making criticism of the government during wartime an imprisonable offense. It will be repealed less than two years later, uh, and uh, it was, of course, uh, the uh, Sedition Act, its enforcement, that led to the arrest, trial, and conviction of Eugene Debs. He would run for the presidency in 1920 from his jail as the socialist candidate. May 16, 1919, a naval Curtis NC-4 aircraft commanded by Albert Cushing Reed leaves uh, Trapassi, Newfoundland for Lisbon via the Azores on the first transatlantic flight. And uh, we remember uh, that uh, Lindbergh made the first solo non-stop flight. But here is the first transatlantic flight by United States uh, a naval aviator, how proud Theodore Roosevelt would be, I think. A 1907 graduate of the Academy at Annapolis and uh, now buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And finally, uh, for those of a literary bent, May 16, 1944, the death in Brook, Indiana of George Ady, an American writer, syndicated newspaper columnist and playwright. And, uh, well, he was uh, quite a... Uh, a uh, colleague in Chicago of uh, John T. McCutcheon at the Chicago Daily News, and uh, along with others from Indiana, Booth Tarkington, Meredith Nicholson, and James Whitcomb Riley, the child's poet. Uh, they were uh, uh, a, a group of uh, writers from the golden age of uh, Indiana uh, writing and storytelling. We've got a, a few uh, speeches of Theodore Roosevelt today. They're on the briefer's side. May 1906 uh, found Theodore Roosevelt in the White House hosting members of the Conference of the Missouri Synod of the German Lutheran Church. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a very great pleasure to me to greet this delegation in the White House. The Lutheran Church began its great work among the people of the infant colonies three generations before those colonies became the United States of America. And from that day to this, the Lutheran Church has played a great, and of recent years, a constantly growing part in that moral and spiritual development, for the lack of which no material development in a nation can atone. Even yet, it can rightly be said of our country that we are in the stage of a great workshop, engaged in making a new nation. It is our essential duty as a people, and it is above all the duty of the churches of this people, to take care of the masses of strangers that come each year to our shores, later to become indistinguishably welded into our common citizenship. Last year, there came more immigrants to the United States that came in all the years from the first settlement at Jamestown to the Declaration of Independence, to the colonies that afterward became the United States. Those people come over here, wrenched free from the old associations, cast adrift in entirely new surroundings, and it is a duty of those who desire this country to become what it must and shall become, to see that the newcomers are not left to drift off among the forces of disorder and of ill religion, are not left to shift for themselves without aid from us. 
No church can play a more important part in doing this work than the Lutheran Church. The church that I myself belong to, a, a very much smaller one than yours, the Reformed Church, has on a smaller scale the same duty to perform. I most earnestly hope, speaking as one so convinced of the work that my own church must do, that yours, the larger church, one of the greatest in the country, will keep steadily before its eyes the prime necessity of that particular duty which lies at its door, the duty of helping the newcomer to our shores who is thrown in contact with so much that is evil, who is exposed to such temptation, of keeping him in touch with the church and social ties that will enable him to speedily himself to become a part of the forces that tell for the moral no less than the material upbuilding of the nation and of each citizen thereof. A charge to the Lutherans to do the great work of a great church. And now to the uh, May 16th, 1908, Spring conferences in Washington, D.C. must have been in vogue for uh, national uh, religious uh, uh, institutions, for this is the General Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church, May 16, 1908, at the White House. The remarks of President Theodore Roosevelt that day. It is a pleasure to be with you today, and to bid you welcome on behalf of the nation here in the capital of the nation. Important though the Methodist Church is in many lands, there is none in which it has played so great and peculiar a part as here in the United States. Its history is indissolubly interwoven with the history of our country for the six score years since the Constitutional Convention made us really a nation. Methodism in America entered on its period of rapid growth just about the time of Washington's first presidency. Its essential democracy its fiery and restless energy of spirit and the wide play that it gave to individual initiative all tended to make it peculiarly congenial to a hardy and virile folk, democratic to the core, prizing individual independence above all earthly possessions and engaged in the rough and stern work of conquering a continent. Methodism spread even among the old communities in the long settled districts of the Atlantic Tidewater but its phenomenal growth was from these regions westward. The whole country is under a debt of gratitude to the Methodist circuit riders, the Methodist pioneer preachers, whose movement westward kept pace with the movement of the frontier, who shared all the hardships in the life of the frontiersmen, while at the same time ministering to that frontiersman's spiritual needs, and seeing that his pressing material cares and the hard and grinding poverty of his life did not wholly extinguish the divine fire within his soul. Such was your work in the past, and your work in the present is as great. For the need and opportunity for service widen as the field of natural, national interest widens. It is not true in this country that the poor have grown poorer, but it is true that in many sections, and particularly in our large cities, the rich have grown so very much richer as to widen the gulf between the man of very large means and the man who makes each day's livelihood by that day's work. And those who with sincerity and efficiency and deep conviction band together for mutual help are those who can do most to keep the gulf from becoming too wide. True religion through church organizations 
through philanthropic organizations in all the field of kindred endeavor can manifest itself as effectively in the crowded and complex life of today as in the pioneer yesterdays. And the souls of men need the light now and strive blindly toward it as they needed it and strove toward it in the vanished past. It is your task to do the work of the Lord on the farm and in the mine, in the counting room and the factory, in the car shops and beside the blasting furnaces, just as it was the task of your spiritual forebears to wrestle for the souls of the men and women who dwelt on the stump-dotted clearings in the wilderness. No nation in the world has more right than ours to look with proud confidence toward the future. Nowhere else has the experiment of democratic government, of government by the people and for the people, of government based on the principle of treating each man on his innate worth as a man, been tried on so vast a scale as with us. And on the whole, the experiment has been more successful than anywhere else. Moreover, on the whole, I think it can be said that we have grown better and not worse. For if there is much evil, good also greatly abounds. And if wrong grows, so in even greater measure grows the stern sense of right before which wrong must eventually yield. It would be both unmanly and unwarranted to become faint-hearted or despairing about the nation's future. Clear-eyed and far-sighted men who are both brave of heart and cool of head while not for a moment refusing to see and acknowledge the many evils around us, must yet also feel a confident assurance that in the struggle we shall win and not lose, that the century that has just opened will see great triumph for our people. But the surest way to achieve this triumph is, while never losing hope and belief in our progress, yet at the same time to refuse to bind ourselves to what is evil in the complex play of the many forces working through and with and against one another in the upbuilding of our social structure. There is much that tends toward evil as well as much that tends towards good. And the true patriot is that man who, without losing faith in the good, does his best to combat the evil, to stamp it out where that is possible, and at least to minimize its results. Prosperity such as ours, necessary though it be as the material basis of national greatness, inevitably tends to undue exaltation of the merely material side of the national character. And we must largely rely on the efforts of such men and women as those I am addressing to build up the spiritual life without which the material life amounts to nothing. As generation succeeds generation, the problems change in their external shape. Old needs vanish and new needs arise. But it remains as true as ever that in the last analysis, national greatness, national happiness, national success depend upon the character of the individual man and the individual woman. We need good laws. We need to have these laws honestly and fearlessly administered. We need wealth. We need science and art and all the kindred activities that spring from the clever brain and the deft hand. But most of all, we need the essential qualities that in their sum make up the good man and the good woman. Most of all, we need that fine and healthy family life, 
the lack of which makes any seeming material prosperity but a glittering sham. If the average man is brave and hard-working and clean-living, if the average woman has the qualities which make a good wife and good mother, if each has self-respect, and if each realizes that the greatest thing in life is the chance to do service, why, then the future of the nation is secure. We cannot stand up for what is good in manhood and womanhood without condemning what is evil. We must condemn the man who is either brutal and vicious or weak and cowardly, the man who fails to do his duty by the public, who is a bad neighbor, an idler, an inconsiderate and selfish husband, a neglectful father. So also we must condemn the woman who, whether from cowardice or coldness, from selfish love of ease or from lack of all true womanly quality, refuses to do aright her great and all essential duties of wifehood and motherhood. We admire a good man, but we admire a good woman more. We believe in her more. All honor is due the man who does his full duty in peace, who as a soldier does his full duty in war, but even more honor is due the mother. For the birth pangs make all men the debtors of all women. No human being has a greater title to respect than the mother who does her full duty, who bears and rears plenty of healthy children, so that there shall be national growth and not national decadence, so that in quality and quantity our people shall increase. The measure of our belief in and respect for the good man and the good woman must be the measure of our condemnation of the man and the woman who, whether from viciousness or selfishness or from vapid folly, fails to do each his or her, her duty in his or her special sphere. Courage, unselfishness, common sense, devotion to high ideals, a proper care for the things of the spirit, and yet also for the things of the body, these are what we most need to see in our people. These are the qualities that make up the right type of family life. And these are the qualities that by precept and by example, you here, whom I am addressing, are bound to do all in your power to make the typical qualities of American citizenship. Theodore Roosevelt, preaching from the bully pulpit of the presidency uh, to the Methodist National Convention uh, in uh, May 16th, 1908. And to conclude uh, our program for today, a, a very brief reading uh, uh, comes in transcript form, published uh, in a booklet titled Social Justice and Popular Rule, Essays, Addresses, and Public Statements Relating to the Progressive Movement, 1910 through 16, by Theodore Roosevelt, these published by Charles Scribner's and Sons in uh, 1925, and uh, the Roosevelt Memorial Association, it's, uh, its successor, the Theodore Roosevelt Association, now uh, the uh, publisher of these remarks. So I'm often struck when we consider the differences between Theodore Roosevelt's time and today. A public speaker, an orator, uh, even a former president, uh, was uh, subject to heckling uh, to shout-outs uh, that uh, weren't always uh, in favor of the uh, individual at the podium and the person making the speech. The deafness, the ability with which a speaker could handle a heckler, uh, could uh, make or break uh, perhaps how the story would be spun in the papers of the evening or the following day. Uh, one of my favorites, it was aforementioned, the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates. And hello to my friend uh, George Boss, uh, to Fritz Klein, 
other gentlemen that bring uh, the great rail splitter from the land of Lincoln to life. But I know that uh, George had done a good deal with the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, through Illinois. And as I have it, I don't think apocryphal. Uh, the format of those debates allowed for uh, long, uh, hours-long speeches by each of the uh, contestants and, and rebuttal and, and uh, could make for a long day. Stephen Douglas, at one of the debates during his comments, stated that uh, Abraham Lincoln had been two-faced. When his turn to speak had come within his remarks, Abraham Lincoln acknowledged uh, the allegation. But he told the audience, he said, now if I had two faces, would I be wearing this one? So uh, you've got to be able to handle a, a heckler, a jest. And here's a, a heckler who in uh, Lima, Ohio, uh, do they say Lima like the bean? In Lima, Ohio, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's on the campaign trail on this date, May 16th, 1912. Uh, he's now uh, aggressively seeking the Republican nomination uh, uh, to follow. A voice is heard. How about a third term? I will answer that. And I will answer it by quoting the words of Mr. Taft's father about a third term. I am quoting from the Cincinnati Enquirer of April 22nd, 1880, when Judge Taft, the father of President Taft, headed a third-term grant club. He headed it in order to beat an Ohio man named Sherman for the presidency. And in his speech, reported in that day's issue of the paper, Judge Taft spoke as follows, quote, I am not afraid of imperialism, uh, unquote. They called it imperialism then, instead of dictatorship, uh, to resume, quote, there is nothing in the argument of imperialism, unquote. Let my friend listen to the next uh, sentence, quote, I don't say but what I would have it in the Constitution that no man shall be his own immediate successor to that office, for the man in power exercises authority over federal appointees. But when a man is out of office and has no power, but that which comes from the respect in which he has been held for what he is and what he has done, there is no danger." Unquote. And then comes a list of the organizers of the Grant Club. The first one is Mr. Taft's father, Alfonso Taft. And down among the list of members comes the name of a bright young representative of the family, Charles P. Taft the president's brother. The whole Taft family was in that movement, and now I will appeal from the son to the father, and I ask you to accept the sound common sense which the father spoke in 1880 as to the ridiculously folly, the ridiculous folly of raising any talk about a third term when the term is not consecutive, and the man out of power has no earthly means of influencing a single office holder, a single privileged representative of the privileged class. I haven't in this contest a single office holder with me. 99% of the professional politicians are against me. Every newspaper that can be directly or indirectly controlled by the interests is against me. 99% of all the big corporations that profit by improper privilege are against me. I have got nobody with me at all, except the people. Theodore Roosevelt, May 16th, 1912. 
It's Saturday morning. It's going to be a beautiful weekend in the Badlands of North Dakota. I hope uh, you've been able to stay with us. There's no Teddy Talks tomorrow on Sunday. We'll resume again on Monday. I'll post here uh, a, uh, an inclusion of what some of those programs may be based on what Teddy talked about, uh, what he said, did, wrote uh, over a century ago during his wonderful lifetime. I do believe he was Mount Rushmore worthy, and I hope that uh, you've enjoyed uh, being here today on Teddy Talks. I wish you all the best for a wonderful weekend to you and yours. Godspeed all those who serve, most especially those uh, churches on the front lines of helping people. And Godspeed our doctors and nurses and all involved in helping us through these uh, through these crises. All the best to you. Goodbye. Good luck. We'll see you here at Teddy Talks on Monday.